Hi, welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy, your quick stop for some queer culture. I'm here again with another special episode with our guest speaker, Julia Peck. Now, Julia is queer and bisexual, a linguist and researcher with Dials, which is Dialogue and Augmentation for Cultural Literacy Learning in Schools, a Horizon 2020 project exploring the cultural literacy learning of young people in Europe. She works at the University of Cambridge and is a Bridging Binaries volunteer at the University of Cambridge Museums, an initiative which explores the spectrum of identities that exist across time, place and culture in Cambridge collections. Now, I saw Julia doing her tour at the Polar Museum almost a year ago, uh, actually almost a year ago, uh, just within a month, I think. And so I really wanted to invite her onto the show to tell us more about it. Julia, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? And thank you so much for having me. I feel good. It doesn't feel like a year ago. It feels like about 30,000 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) No, everything that's happened between. It really has. And I I really miss giving tours at the museum. It feels like ages that I've been able to um, meet a group and and tell them about all the crazy queer stuff in the Polar Museum. Yeah, goodness. I I, am... Like uh, last week, I was going through my photos from 2020, just wrap it because I, I take them off once a year. And I found the photos I took on the tour. Uh, and I took a photo of like an owl that has a lemming stuck to its belly. And this one, a little sculpture called like my first skidoo ride of this guy hanging off the back of a skidoo. Like he, he obviously lost control of it. <laughs> and I just it took me back there. And I was I'm really excited to get started today. Yeah, actually, my parents were on the tour that you were on. I don't know if you knew that. They were, yeah, because you said. (laughs) Yeah, they were there. Um, And funnily enough, that was the first time I told them I was queer. And it was like, it was a really big day for me. It was a really big moment. And it was so cool to have have told these stories about the museum and to have like Cambridge, members of the Cambridge community like you there um, and to have them there. And then afterwards kind of been like, hey, this is really important to me for more reasons than you know. And it was, yeah. So that that day has a, a place in my heart that's really special. Wow, how momentous. That's so so lovely. So wonderful to have been there for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm ready to start the tour, if you are. Me too, me too. I've been ready for about a year. <laughs> I'm going to shut these down, so let's go. So I, what normally happens when a tour begins is that I, I would just love to walk people through as if we were in person, because of course we are in a museum. This tour is about objects. Um, and so I'll be trying to paint a picture of where we would be if we could all be together in the Polar Museum. So first, just a little bit about the about the museum and why these tours even exist. What does Bridging Binaries mean? So Bridging Binaries is a program that exists across the University of Cambridge Museums, which is the whole kind of network of museums that the University of Cambridge has in its, in, in its network. It also has kind of research arms to these places. So I'm sure you all have heard of the Fitzwilliam. There's also the Zoology Museum and Anthropology Museum. Fabulous sort of range of of museums that you should all visit. But they've really done an amazing job of creating this Bridging Binaries program, which is um, essentially a way to bring in queer stories and hidden stories into the museum. And what they do is, well, this all actually started in London at the VNA, at the Victoria and Albert Museum, with this fabulous historian um, named Dan Vo, who started um, the whole sort of LGBTQ plus tour. He was walking through, I think the story goes that he was walking through the VNA, saw an object and said, you know, there's queer history behind this. I really wish this were on the labels. I wish I could tell people. And I, I believe that he tweeted about it 
tagged the museum and they contacted him within a few days saying, you know, actually, that's great to know. We had no idea. Why don't you tell us what you, what you know? What are you seeing that, we're, that we have totally missed? And they started a collaboration that has then spread out from London to Cambridge. And I think some of the museums in Oxford are starting up as well. Cambridge has this sort of really rich network again, as I said, of the seven or eight, I believe, museums now. So it's been... Um, really amazing and what they do is they recruit volunteers like me they train us up in giving museum tours and then they give us the content that's developed by the museum curators so i happen to do tours in the polar museum um, doesn't mean i'm an expert on polar regions in fact i'm very much not um, my background is in anthropology but i used to work in the deserts of new mexico you couldn't really get any different but it was it's just been an amazing experience to learn about the polar regions and to interact with museum curators I got to go um, meet them and ask them all the questions I had so that I could then share even more with people on my tours. So I, I, I start out the tour in the great hall in the great sort of lobby of the Scott Polar Research Museum. The museum is named after Ca um, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, who was an explorer of the polar regions himself and who died, um, he and his entire expedition in 1912, coming back from one such um, voyage. And in the lobby of the museum, you would be standing there and I would invite you to look up at the ceiling. One end of the lobby is labeled Antarctica and the other end is labeled Arctic. I would invite you over to the Antarctic side. We would look up at the ceiling and see these beautiful maps. Um, we would be looking at the Antarctic one. And these are circular maps that imagine if you were standing below planet Earth and looking up at Antarctica. The map was created by Max Gills, who's a, an amazing sort of cartographer and designer. And you'd see the Antarctic continent, all of the landforms, and you'd also see superimposed on the map little icons of different ships and their names. You'd even see um, some of the names of the explorers around the map in a ring. And so we'd kind of situate ourselves in Antarctica to start out with, although later, of course, we'll travel all the way onto the other side of the planet to the Arctic. And I would also thank the Arts Council England and the Changemakers Action Group at Cambridge. Really tons of work has gone into bringing queer history into the museum. So shout out to all of those incredible efforts and uh, to our public institutions. So mm, yeah. then I would, what I, I love starting out on the tour because it starts out with just such a fun story. Um, the first object that I tell people about is actually a penguin egg. So we feel rooted in the present, we're in a museum, but then I invite people to come back 19 million years ago when penguins started to live on the Antarctic continent. And I would point, I point to a little glass case next to us where actually, if you look inside, you'll see another little glass and wooden box and inside is an egg. And it's probably about four times the size of a chicken egg and it's kind of speckled. It's not perfectly white, it's got some gray in it. And this egg, I promise this is queer. This is gonna be, a, this is a queer egg, okay? <laughs> this, this egg was collected, it's a penguin egg and it was collected in Antarctica by Edward L. Atkinson on the Terra Nova expedition. And he actually collected this egg for his sister. It ended up in the museum. I don't know how she feels about that. Um, but on the same expedition, so maybe someone who even saw this very egg was George Murray Levick, um, who for a hundred years was the only person to spend an entire breeding cycle observing what is is now known as the largest colony of Adelie penguins, which is the species of penguin that um, we're talking about. 
that this egg came from. So if you think your job is tedious, imagine <laughs> squatting in the ice watching penguins. Um, but when he was squatting on the ice watching penguins, he saw something that appears to have scarred him forever, <laughs> which is that he oh, was no. watching, yeah, he was watching two penguins mating, run of the mill business, you gotta take notes on what penguins do when they're mating. And then he noticed that they switched positions. So one penguin is mounting the other, right? And then they switched and continued. <laughs> and he writes in his notes, whereupon the nature of their same sex proceeding was disclosed. So this, this dude's mind is blown. Um, over the course of his time watching a breeding cycle of penguins, he sees a lot more instances of gay penguin sex, essentially. <laughs> Um, and he takes extensive notes like any gentleman researcher in the early 1900s would do, but all of the bits about penguins doing queer stuff, he actually pasted over the notes. He wrote some of them in ancient Greek because only educated white guys could read ancient Greek, so no one would ever find this information. And indeed, um, no one did find this information until the paper that he wrote, um, which was called The Sexual Habits of the Adelie Penguin was rediscovered in 2012 at the Natural History Museum in Tring. It was stuck in some archive um, because it had been limited to a print run of a hundred. I mean, just scandalous things, obviously. Absolutely scandalous. <laughs> I, apparent, I mean, this is crazy because this would have, if it had been properly published, it would have been one of the earliest scientific recordings of homosexual behavior in animals. So there, um, it would have been really, really groundbreaking. I mean, this guy could have maybe won some scientific prizes, but instead, of course, he was kind of blinded by... <laughs> he was too much of a prude is what he was. <laughs> I know. Um, I think he was jealous because this is, what is my favorite thing? That paper concluded with the line there seems to be no crime too low for these penguins. Which just like, I feel like we could write a whole thesis about like the transferal of, of human morality and criminality onto animal behavior, but I'm sure- Oh, sure that's it. <laughs> so rude of him. I know. And I mean, what I think what he was getting onto, what he, I think he knew what he had found, which isn't just that he had found Two penguins who maybe like got hit on the head when they were little and ended up doing some weird stuff. No, he was finding actually like regular behavior that then is repeated across the species, repeated, repeated across other penguin species, and of course is common to many other different types of animals. And I think he must have known that he was kind of cracking open this whole discussion about what is normal and uh, in terms of sex and sexuality. Um, really, can we defend um sort of heteronormativity on the basis that it's natural and that um, mm. all other species do it no I think he knew that that was that was getting uh kind of that was ebbing away as an idea and indeed like I mean scientists and zoologists and people other people who study penguins have found that the other species um who are considered Antarctic penguins emperor uh, Gen 2 and Chinstrap penguins all have documented homosexual behavior. So I just want to share a story of like, we, we have these abstract two male penguins having sex, but we can bring this into the present and like tell a story about my favorite homosexual penguin couple, which is Roy and Silo. Have you heard of them? They're at the, they're at the New York Central Park Zoo. I think so. They had a book written about them and Tango yeah. makes three, right? Yes. Yeah. You, you listen so well. <laughs> Um, I know. I feel like I feel like every every child should get a copy of Antangle. Oh, yeah. yeah, as the title suggests, 
Tango is a baby penguin raised by two male penguins at the Central Park Zoo. And so what Roy and Silo did, and of course now we have video and photographic evidence, and this came out in all the newspapers. Um, it was the early 2000s, so it was like still scandalous somehow. They, these two penguins displayed classic pair bonding behavior. So they entwine their necks, they mutually preen, flipper flapping, all the things that, you know, you and I do to our partners. <laughs> all that flipper flapping. <laughs> yeah, love a good flipper flap. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, like scandal, it, nothing has changed between 19. 15 and the early 2000s it kind of was like plastered over tabloids like the daily mail and new york post and yeah. um of course was considered propaganda of the gay agenda which great propaganda it was just a lovely children's book amazing how we managed to convince the penguins to do it for our cause <laughs> we did yeah i mean we all know that the queer speak penguin Obviously. we learn it in school right <laughs> <laughs> so Homosexual behavior has been on Antarctica for at least 19 million years. And it's not just penguins, right? It's been observed in polar bears and walruses as well. And uh, humans too, which uh, I'll definitely get to later. But the humans on Antarctica, although no humans are indigenous to there, certainly uh, have been getting freaky as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at, at this point in the tour... Um, we would leave our our lobby, we would leave our lovely penguin egg, and we're going to walk over, we're going to walk into the museum, into the main front door, and we're going to turn left towards a display about Inuit communities. So hmm. just to unpack Inuit for a second, I'm sure we've all kind of heard the word, but it's an umbrella term for a cultural and linguistic group that spans the Arctic regions of what is now Greenland and Canada and Alaska. They're not the only Arctic indigenous group, um, but they are quite a large one. And we are gonna talk about them now. Um, we're not gonna look at a particular object in the museum at the moment, but if, if we were there in person, you might get distracted by the very gorgeous beaded belts um, and beautiful things that we'd be looking at in the cases. But what I, be, what, uh, what I love to talk about, and I love this section, it is about a um, sort of modern configuration, modern and historical configuration of gender that um, doesn't follow sort of the classical boundaries. We're going to think about um, some gender fluidity and also how to talk about homosexuality when it's not necessarily uh, a concept uh, for which there are words. So what do I mean by that? There is no inuktitut. Um, that's the language spoken by, the language group rather, spoken by Inuit communities, word for homosexuality. We, there are words, we do have words for homosexual behavior. They can be understood literally as two hard things rubbing together or two soft things rubbing together. I would argue that's not the only way to do things, but you know. Um, <laughs> but there isn't a word for homosexuality as in sort of the entrenched tendency, which I think is interesting. There's a word for the behavior. Mm. We can talk about it as something that we do, but maybe not as something that we are. And I'll get into that in a second um, because there are other ideas kind of in Inuktika and uh, Inuit cultures that um, are maybe complementary, And maybe we can think, yeah, think about whether that label is is necessary. So for some people, it might be. For some people, it might not. It sounds a bit like there's, there's quite a lot more like opportunity for fluidity with that because then you're not labeling a person as being gay you, right. they are they're doing something that is is homosexual for a while and then maybe they don't later and like that that feels a lot more fluid and a lot more like open right it is and I mean 
but I do feel a, a personal sort of a, a connection to it in that as a, as a bi person, as someone who spent most of my life not recognizing that I was queer because I do, I do love like men and I have had male partners and I do have a long-term male partner. And so because I wasn't just one thing that was labeled other, because I wasn't just someone who loved women, Mm -hmm. um, it was really hard for me to recognize that there was even an option for me to be queer. Right. And so if we talked about it in terms of behavior, in terms of behavior, or um, feelings rather than sort of a, a stoic identity. I feel like a lot of a lot of bi folks who at least I talk to feel like we don't belong in either category. We don't feel straight when we're supposed to feel straight and we don't feel queer when we're supposed to feel queer. Mm. Um, and neither community kind of, we don't really fit into either community. So I find it really interesting. I think like, yeah, again, I wanna really talk about the way that they see fluidity and they have a very, sort of defined uh, way of talking about it, a defined concept for it, which is uh, called, which is the word sipinik, which translates, and that like, you heard that like guttural sound at the end, that's actually what the what the letter sounds like. We don't have it in English, of course, um, but it means splitting, literally. It's this idea that a child who's, who is born might be culturally transitioned into a gender different from their sex assigned at birth. So normally it, w- it would be a boy, uh, a baby boy named after a female who is then raised as a girl. So may- might be cross-dressed until puberty, at which point they might go back to taking on more masculine roles, again, um, matching with their sex assigned at birth, or some folks who um, who are sort of part of the Sipinik tradition can t- go on to become shamans and actually continue to assume the role of that third that third gender, that third um, social gender. So they might continue to live as sort of culturally as women, but who are acknowledged as having been assigned male at birth. And again, um, these are holy people. This is not a marginalized identity. And um, it, that might sort of in English, we might be, we might use the term two spirit, which is a term that lots of indigenous contemporary thinkers and activists have used to describe themselves when speaking English, of course. Of course, there are different words for this in the many, many hundreds of indigenous languages across the world. But that mm-hmm. might be a term that you might see in discussions of in, indigenous queerness. And another thing that's, um, that's certainly part of Inuit communities is not just a, the, we kind of just talked about fluidity, but there's also some neutrality in um, gender neutrality and labor roles and also in naming practices. So labor roles traditionally, at least um, we're kind of right now talking up until 1900, which is the information that I at least have access to, would love to talk to folks living in Inuit communities these days to think about labor and how it's changed since colonization. But traditionally, um, labor was allocated in the communities according to need and preference. So women could hunt and men could cook and deliver babies. These kinds of gendered labor labor divisions that you and I would recognize immediately are certainly not applicable in the same way. And then the kind of like gold standard of labor is the privilege of the polar bear hunt. And that was chosen by lot, by a lottery, and out and open to anyone who is physically able to do it, regardless of gender. Wow. Yeah. So like, uh, would you would you submit your name to to do it, or was everybody who was able bodied like? Put oh, into I the wish hat? I I wish I knew how that worked. I don't know whether there's like a. I'm thinking like Goblet of Fire sort of thing. Exactly. 
yeah, imagine the privilege of the polar bear hunt. Yeah, I'm imagining that you would have to be able to like lift your entire family on your shoulders and like run across an ice patch in under like 12 seconds. I, I feel like there could yeah. be a lot going on there. Or maybe it's, yeah, maybe trials. it's just like drawing sticks, which would be kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, maybe so, but also maybe fairer. <laughs> yeah, I would apply. Would you apply? Does does that? Oh yeah, yeah. as a, as an as an honor, um, in a time when polar bears weren't maybe endangered. Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like they can do whatever they want with the polar oh, bears. Oh yeah, but me as a me as a white person trying to go along, yeah, I think I'd have to <laughs> think about that again. Yeah. So one thing, this is one of my favorite parts of the tour because um, we're going to go visit a queer sea goddess in a second. But I just want to kind of go into a little bit of Inuit uh, history and oral history rather in creation stories. Mm. And so this kind of the kind of contemporary ideas um, and traditional ideas of gender fluidity are are connected to the deep rooted sort of creation of the people of the people themselves. So there, the, I'll just quickly summarize two creation stories. One is the story of two male gods, Akulu Jusi and Umarnituk, who um, allegedly created humans together when one became pregnant still as a man, uh, and then was able to give birth when he transformed uh, into, into a woman. So at the very beginning of the world, we're seeing fluidity, we're seeing transformation, and the, this is way more cooler than Adam and Eve, in, in my opinion. No removal of ribs, just two dudes having fun, and then uh, you get to be a lady for a second to birth the world. How beautiful is that? <laughs> yeah. I know. And then I would, obviously, the the moment we've all been waiting for is the the queer sea goddess. So I would walk you over to the case with a sculpture of Sedna, who is the Inuit sea goddess. She's also called Taluliuk in some cases. And this is a really beautiful sculpture. Um, it's quite small. It's out of black soapstone. So it's this really kind of shiny, supple stone. Um, the sculpture is by Tarulagak. It's actually a contemporary, uh, contemporary sculpture. This is not an old object but it is um, a representation of um, one of the oldest and most respected goddesses in, in a cosmology. So the sculpture is of her lying on her stomach, leaning on her elbows with her hands on either side of her face. So it's kind of like a, she's like about to listen to some juicy gossip at a sleepover or something. And she's got eyes and nose and mouth and her body's really kind of round and she's got no hair and the tail of a fish. So this is a fully queer look. I love it. She's only missing the flannel. No, she's totally not missing a flannel. She's perfect <laughs> as she is. But traditionally in, in Inuit creation stories, I mean, she's served by two spirit shamans and she herself is said to live under the sea with a female companion in many of the stories that, that are told about her. Mm, yeah, nice. I know. <laughs> Sometimes when my day is really hard, I'm just like, I could be living under the sea with a female companion, <laughs> a companion served by two spirit shamans. But wouldn't that be nice? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> And so just fast forwarding into modern times before we leave Inuit communities for a, for a second and move in other directions in the Arctic, I did want to touch on what folks in the contemporary Inuit queer community say and, and think just briefly. I mean, there's so much I could 
point us to in terms of activist communities on the internet and writings by Inuit folks. But in short, there is kind of a difficulty embracing the concept of pride that those of us in, in the South, as they say, do kind of celebrate to, to really encapsulate all that's um, that's all that's queer and to really have a moment to, to celebrate each other, which is how we think of pride. But um, if we unpack it for a second, it, of course it's difficult to embrace because pride um, of course implies um, filling a void where there was shame. And for a culture in which gender fluidity and, and gender neutrality in some aspects of culture is um, so deeply rooted, perhaps pride isn't, isn't necessarily needed. And we've already discussed the differences between the, a word like gay or homosexual as a static identity versus thinking about it as a behavior that can change um, and as, a, as an identity that's inherently fluid. So, but we of course have managed to cultivate a shame around it and that's why we need mm. pride in its place, right? So we haven't seen any Inuit pride um, we will talk a little more about pride in polar regions, but yeah, important to remember, I think that there's, there's other ways of doing it and that pride is sort of the hegemonic day and way of celebrating queerness is certainly not the truth um, around the world. I mean, perhaps if we'd be less stigmatizing of queer folks and had a queer sea goddess watching over us instead, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need to do that. Yeah, maybe that would be nice. It would be nice. <laughs> so I we could talk for hours and hours about different Arctic communities. I think um, I will rocket us into the into the Antarctic, which I don't want to ignore at all. But I do want to say first that if we went a little bit further west in the Arctic, we would we certainly we could visit Kamchatka, which is a peninsula in what what is now Russia, and we know that there two spirit shamans stretch back to at least thirty thousand years ago which is kind of the upper Paleolithic period. And then if we were to go to what is now Russia, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, where the Sami people live, another large indigenous group in the Arctic, um, we know that there's queer folks among the Sami. In 2013, they had a delegation of 200 indigenous people organized through social media who congregated in Sweden to celebrate the first uh, Sami pride. And they also are drawing on two spirit traditions in, in their own cultures. Wow. So we've got, I know, right? <laughs> That's amazing. I know. You should, you should Google, you should Google the pictures. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's I will. Really definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go ahead to the back of the museum, um, deep into the Polar Museum. We're going to pass my favorite part of the museum where you can actually try on the outfits that different explorers would have worn, some fur-lined boots. And we're going to go stand in the climate change temporary exhibit at the back where we will land in front of a picture of the absolute legend Anne Bancroft. Um, she is the first woman to reach the North Pole. That was in 1986, as well as the first woman to reach both the North and South Poles in 1992, because she wasn't, you can't just stick with one. You can't just go to one pole and not the other, not obviously. Exactly. And this shouldn't come as a surprise at all, but she was queer as hell. She was um, a very out lesbian, who identifies also as an eco-feminist, um, which is a way of think, viewing the world where we connect the exploitation of planetary resources and the domination over the earth with the exploitation of women's bodies um, and with marginalized bodies. And she, so Anne Bancroft came out shortly after she returned from the North Pole, which is like 
what a way to come out, right? She was, <laughs> she was just like, I was just on top of the earth. And by the way, I'm queer. Um, and <laughs> by the mid nineties, which feels like, you know, math wise wasn't that long ago, but culturally does feel like a really long time ago. She was out fully and regularly talking about her sexuality in public, mm. um, which you and I That's were like thing. five, right? But I think for everyone else was like, whoa, um, yeah. this is before Ellen, right? Well, I, it's like even as a, as a child, like born in 91, so I was quite young in the 90s, but yeah. I was still, you know, mid 90s onwards, I was still aware of what people were saying, how they talked about people, how they talked about lesbians on tv and in the news yeah. and it was all very scandalous and and so even if you're not in the conversation you know right and it's, so it's, it was a big thing for her to be out and out and proud and also be like and also i've been to the polls so we're gonna know and it? also i'm just a complete badass right yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean i remember the, i think the first the first time i ever heard of queerness was a music teacher at my elementary school had a, a rainbow flag sticker on the back of his car and I think I was seven or eight and we were all trying to figure out what it meant. And someone had heard a rumor that it meant that he does illegal things with men. So I remember like, and he was the most beloved teacher in school. And I remember kind of being scared of him for a while before I went home to my mom and said, you know, what's going on? I think she sat me down and said, listen, uh, Mr. Simons is awesome in the classroom and outside the classroom and he lives his life. Oh yeah, the nineties. <laughs> so Anne Bancroft, while you and I are being traumatized as children around yes. queerness, was leading uh, the first east-west crossing of Greenland. I mean, her resume is just absolutely out of out of this world. She was also one of the first two women to cross Antarctica on foot with her uh, companion Liv Arneson in 2001. And then uh, queerest of all, she led the first all-female expedition to the South Pole in 92 and 93 and packed out not only all of her own trash, which apparently wasn't a normal thing to do, but also packed out the trash left by male explorers who had come before her. Wow. Um, so thanks. Yeah, we should just end the podcast there. Like that, yeah. that <laughs> that's it. What an amazing woman. So she just kept, like picked up all the trash. Yeah. You can do it even. Not great. <laughs> yeah. You can even pick up your trash in the most harsh environment in the world. You can do yeah. that. So pick it up. Yeah. I imagine her with like a little baggie, just like a hazmat snowsuit and then like a little baggie. Um, and I, I do want to point out, I mean, when we talk about women and their and our firsts, it's not, and they're often so recent, right? Particularly for these athletic achievements, these really physically difficult and arduous achievements. It feels like, oh yeah, it wasn't until the 90s that someone was, a woman was finally strong enough to do it. That's just not the case. I mean, in Antarctica, women were banned, um, were barred access to Antarctica by the US and the UK, which were the, the countries leading most of the expeditions um, until the late 60s. And of course, I mean, this is a place where you need to go well-resourced. You do often need the support of a state and a research station and things like that. So yeah, there were real systemic barriers. And in fact, I'm about to get into the history of women much earlier than that who were trying to go and who did kind of slip through the cracks. So all the respect to Anne Bancroft, but she's not the first one to want to go. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And yeah. it wasn't, yeah. And it wasn't just sort of institutional official barriers for women to get onto the continent. It was also sort of these literary tropes about Antarctica that just like a bit of a content warning, I'm about to make a reference to sexual exploitation and sexual violence. 
but there was a tradition that Antarctica was um, a woman to be conquered or a virgin to be penetrated. This is the way that the continent was written about. I mean, if you think about it, it's perfect in all the worst ways. You know, it's a, a shiny a white expanse of emptiness for someone to write their story on, which probably has um, connections even to things like white supremacy. I mean, it's the per <laughs> it's the perfect sort of colonial wet dream, if you will. Um, and of course, you know, misogyny was injected into that. And so not only, you know, were women not, were not allowed to access it, but it was actually seen as a woman itself. And um, so it's not a surprise at all that, you know, Sir Ernest Shackleton, one of the, probably the most famous Antarctic explorer who was active in the early 1900s, he refused the request of three women who sought a place on his Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Um, and they wrote him a letter saying they did not see why, I'm quoting, men should have all the glory and women none. If our feminine garb is inconvenient, we should just love to don masculine attire. And this letter is in the archives of the Scott Polar Research Institute. Um, so it would be, if you and I were in the museum right now, it would be right above our heads in the library. Yeah, wow. these women are just begging for like a, a snowsuit with pants, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. This, like, I'm not even asking you to make a snow dress. I, I want to wear the snow trousers and the boots. Let me go. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like you have the trousers. Like, let me put my body in it, right? And so... Yeah, and I mean, it goes even earlier than that. So that was the, that's the early 1900s. So the, the, the Western record of women in the Antarctic, and I should just say for a second, Antarctica, to be clear, has never had an, an indigenous population. There are um, some recorded uh, history and also oral history, which is uh, equally as important, of Pacific Islander people, including Pacific Islander women who have been going to Antarctica and who have reached it um, by, by boat um, for hundreds of years. So hard to know who, um, who, what kind of folks were there first. And so when we're talking about first women, uh, we are talking about European women and because of the sort of imperial legacy and of documentation and exploration there. So with that addendum said, mm -hmm. the, the record of Western women and the Antarctic begins in the 18th century with Louise Seguin, who, who she sailed on a ship undisclosed on the ship's manifest, which is the list of all the dudes on the ship, um, on the on the Roland, which was one of the uh, expo exploratory ships there. And some say that she got on because she was disguised as a boy. Um, one person who definitely was disguised as a man was um, Jeanne Barré, who was the first known woman to circumnavigate the entire globe. She was a botanist. Um, who traveled as the assistant to the ship's naturalist. And she was in full disguise as a man named Jean Barré. So just knocked off two letters from her name, was like, I'm going to study plants. And you guys uh, can't be mad that I'm actually a lady. Otherwise, like, I mean, the record is so sparse. Some men brought their wives on journeys to the Arctic regions and Antarctic regions, but they often um, weren't allowed to leave the ship. And not much is recorded of their, of their experiences Although we do have documentation of um, what was happening back home. I mean, I don't want to ignore the fact that there are women involved in the stories of men on in the polar regions, because women are always part of the stories of Antarctic and Arctic exploration, even when it's just the men who are physically on the continents, right? Because women are their wives are at home raising children, often with very little money. These were not kind of celebrity explorers. 
um, they were, it was a really difficult experience. And of course the anxiety of wondering if your partner um, on whom you depend for um, food and funding, and you don't of course own any property or assets of your own, wondering if they're gonna come back or if they'll be stranded on the ice like so many of them were, including uh, Captain Robert Falcon Scott after whom the museum is named. Mm. So even, I mean, even again, off the outside of the ships, there are women in these stories. Um, and then kind of later, later on, if we move out, out of the kind of first women and into the, into the 70s and 80s, there are records of women contesting the traditional notions of femininity at the British Antarctic Survey. Um, we have, I, I just love these angry letters. Um, I'm a fan of the angry email. So we have angry, angry letters protesting the discriminatory policy towards women. And I'll just read another one because I, I love this one. Please do. It's, one of them reads, perhaps you feel our crinoline petticoats will inhibit our research. If, however, you have discovered a major biological factor why females cannot live in tents, I am sure that the science world as a whole will be most intrigued to hear from you. And they were, I mean, <laughs> they- That's so good. Honestly, the scathing letters are wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> the precursor to the like, to the angry Facebook post is so great. And I mean, this thread keeps coming back of just like, of apparel mm. and these kind of just basic problems that are invented as the barrier for women to be participating yeah right? and they're like so clearly like pointing out the fact that their their argument isn't is not about anything lacking in women they just don't want women there you know they're yeah. saying well okay so you said that i need to wear uh, something suitable for the climate and there's nothing made for women then I will wear the men's clothes and they're like no no then there's also this other reason that you yeah something else Wait, is do you also... want to hear it you are onto something do you want to hear the other reason they gave yeah what the what the British Antarctic Survey responded was that there have there were no facilities for women and when that was interrogated and people were like what facilities dude they were like um there are no shops or hairdressers <laughs> so like women who are fully prepared to go to antarctica like i'm pretty sure they're aware that there's not going to be like an aveda shop when yeah they oh you won't yeah. be able to do your your little girly things where you go off and get your nails done and have your hair done so you couldn't possibly be interested in our awesome manly adventures because you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, if if you want to get your nails done, like amazing, but you—that's not the woman who's applying to go yeah. like hang out with penguins. Like that's not. There's no overlap. This She'll a, be aware. It's an uninhabited like continent. Yeah. And then here's the other excuse, which just gets, it gets worse. So the big, the other big concern wasn't, was not just that, like, you couldn't get your perm redone, but that if women were there, it would lead to sex, um, which would cause jealousies, which would affect station morale and destabilize these communities that are living in the middle of an ice cap. My favorite part of that is that it pretends that there's no sex between the men, <laughs> which is... I'm going to get into that very soon, oh, yeah. but it's not true. There is the sex between the men and um, there would just be more of it if women were around or the same amount. So what actually, so what Admiral George Dufek, who led the U.S. Navy's operations in Antarctica in the late 1950s said about this, he had a genius solution, which was that women 
I quote, will not be allowed in Antarctica until we can provide one woman for every man. So I'm just imagining the like the rationing package that every man got when he went, goes to Antarctica. He yep. gets like his kit with his knife and um, maybe some caloric pellets and some pack of nuts or whatever. And then he just gets a woman. It's like, welcome aboard. <laughs> here's your here's your bed. Here's your wife. Next one, yep. welcome aboard. Here's your bed. Here's your wife. It's like, it's just such a commodity. It's so awful. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's awful. And, and of course, if the women are Anne Bancroft and Liz Arneson, then I think they're paired off with each other. So that messes up your ratio, dude, because yeah. <laughs> not, all the, not all the women are straight either. Yeah. Exactly. A lot, and lots of women in, in Antarctica apparently are. So I'll just like, I want to close this part with a quote from Liz Morris, who is the former head of the British Antarctic Survey's Ice and Climate Division. She was also the, the first... Uh, BIS um, woman to work in the remote Antarctic field from from a tent, mind you, which she was perfectly capable of using. Um, She challenged rigid gender binaries in 1988 when she wrote of gender issues in Antarctic exploration, saying, the problem is, you see, women are not women any more than men are men. I was put in a position where I was put into a category, which basically had no meaning for me. What I am as a physicist, a Londoner, someone that's passionate about the mountains, somebody that loves poetry, but the you are a woman group is meaningless. And so a lot of us might not identify with this, right? Like some people are like, hey, like actually my gender is important. But I think what she was saying is that there's no space for that. I mean, that was a category that for her was even more important than her being a physicist. When when the But when the work is about the physics of of ice or whatever she was studying obviously that's the category that yeah. needs to, that needs to that needs to make sense and determine what she does but it wasn't yeah. it was her gender that's so interesting and so yeah, well put as well it is really well put and i think um in recent decades women have increasingly participated in lots of in lots of antarctic roles including as base personnel and scientists and station leaders and adventurers Um, There is a long way to go, although we will talk soon about how Antarctica has kind of carved out its own space to be a little bit of an oasis for queerness. So it has it has moved forward, although um, what we've kind of talked about in the last few minutes is uh, a misogyny that's that's um, shot through all of it. And that might not even, you know, that might not be solved even by uh, an openness or queerness. I think there has to be kind of an anti-misogynist bent towards all of the kind of opening and diversifying that we do at all times. But that's like, (laughs) so I wanna, before I move on um, to talking about what to what the men got up to in their um polar exploration camps i do want to see if you can guess han what Anne bancroft's roller derby name was because obviously she was into roller derby oh my god uh and bang crush oh that's so good (laughs) (laughs) no but what is it think think ice okay no i'll tell you it's snow mercy oh that's good incredible like it was as if she couldn't get better and then she like does roller derby and is full of puns oh that's so good (laughs) so we've talked about what um what women were up to and the kind of like glass icy ceilings that were bashed and not bashed and uh the queerness among among women explorers and now i kind of want to i want to talk about what these men got up to in in the times when uh there were only 
men on Arctic and Antarctic um, polar research stations. So we are going to walk over to the back left display case in the museum in front of a rather large barrel organ in, in the case. And in case you don't know what a barrel organ was, which I definitely didn't before I started giving these tours, it is a massive music box um, that is played by turning a barrel with a crank. And coming out of the barrel are little metal pins in a, in a particular arrangement. And those pins each pluck a metal harp. And so as you crank it, similar to how you would crank a little music box, uh, the, the barrel lifts the keys that open the valves that let air out of the bellows. And so it plays a song. So it's you don't need any, obviously, musical skill. You just need someone with an arm to turn a crank. And these were really convenient ways to have music and parties on very long ship voyages and very lonely Arctic and Antarctic research stations. So what does it have to do with queerness? Well, we do know that early polar exploration was quite the boys club. And so this was one of the major forms of entertainment and they would use the barrel organs particularly for in the great British tradition, they, they put on fabulous pantos. I'm gonna define again, cause I am a Jewish American who had no idea what a panto was, but it is a play put on normally around Christmas time. Yeah. Interestingly, yes, got that right. But do you know where it comes from? Uh, no, I don't know what the tradition is with the pantomime. I'm sure there's something about cross-dressing in there, though. So much. And the reason is that it can actually be traced back to the ancient Roman Saturnalia Midwinter Feast, where everything was supposed to be turned upside down. So that's why there's so much cross-dressing in pantomimes, because in the sort of original Roman feast, it was as if like everything was opposite of what it was supposed to be. So men dress up as women and women dress up as men. So there's this like queer history of pantos, which you look like your mind is. I am shook. Okay. (laughs) I am so shook. That is the best thing about pantos I've ever learned. Christmas Uh, will be different from you for you from now on. Yeah, I might enjoy pantos from now. Uh, I'm going to look that up later. But yes, please carry on. (laughs) Yeah, so they would, I mean... They would put on pantos in the middle of the Arctic. And in the notes of a man named George Frederick McDougall from one of the voyages, the HMS Resolute, he detailed all the preparations for that year's pantomime, um, which, and this is how he put it. He says, all has been hurry and bustle for the last fortnight in preparing scenes, decorations, and dresses for the theater. The dressmaking business was indeed extremely puzzling, particularly in the ladies department. So like this was not like a casual endeavor where they thought they would like put on a play one night. This was planned. Skirts and petticoats had been brought in from England. On site, they sort of, they made, they sewed and uh, hemmed garments and they would, they would, they would really go all in. They made a dress that resembled a miniature St. Paul's dome. Like they had so much time on their hands. I know. <laughs> it's just like RuPaul's Drag Race, like putting something together. It is just like colder. Um, <laughs> so in 1852, this was two years before the the boat that they were on was stranded on the ice. So at least they had a, a great time while Up it lasted. Up then, memories. Yep. <laughs> McDougal said that the Theatre Royal on Melville Island um, first opened under the command of William and Perry, William Perry in 1820. So they opened an entire theater. Like this was 
official. And uh, McDougal recalled that the temperature is zero on stage, no joke in petticoats. So maybe this is why they were so worried about women wearing dresses in the polar regions, because they knew how cold it is if you're not wearing stockings. Yeah, but it sounds like they didn't really know how to make a petticoat either. So maybe they weren't doing it right. <laughs> I don't think they were doing it right either. I feel like they had so many, they could have used some like seal blubber. Like there's ways to keep warm. They were just They not- could have just maybe I mean that's maybe it's the same thing like men are always wearing shorts in winter like I think they just don't know how to take care of themselves poor guys so (laughs) they the men of the discovery we have just we have just reams of evidence like we have no evidence of like women like doing important things but we have like reams of documentation of men putting on pantos that's great (laughs) um so the men of the discovery expedition in 1901 um put on a production on the ship there was also a sports day where medals were awarded by a man dressed up as the women Um, apparently several officers were away at the time and this is kind of real so the men did feel freer in their activities like there is something in here about this being a space away from this incredibly heteronormative um society back in back in England and the States. And it's not just the British. Um, in the late 90s, the 1990s, at the time of the popularity of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is a TV show, um, Australian National News featured stories of drag queens out on Antarctic research bases. And recent visitors to um, to the bases have actually said that the tradition is really uh, is still alive and strong. Like there's been at this point a hundred years of cross dressing and pantos um, on Antarctic research bases. Um, they also tend to do this when a new guest arrives or there's a fancy dress party. There's just so much drag. So if you and anyone listening Google's right now Scott Base skirt party you will see the proof oh that's a gosh. Scott base is an Antarctic research base. It's one of the big ones. Um, and it seems that, I mean, this is the old term, the old like fashion term for a polar squadron. It's a party. And this is, uh, this is what's happening. Um, you should look. You oh should my look God. I've just videos. looked it up. It looks like, <laughs> what do you see? It looks like freshers night, basically. <laughs> that's what it is. <gasps> Oh and these are all like gosh. people with doctorates like <laughs> yeah the best and coolest like people exactly. this is so wonderful oh my gosh thank you so much <laughs> welcome I hope they I hope they put on proper stockings at this point it feels like there should at least some like Uniqlo heat tech leggings because something that, for the cold. So cold yeah um so I, I guess like this is obviously hilarious but I've been kind of dancing around the idea of like queerness and sex on the explorers ships and um also a couple times on the tours that I've given in the museum people are like well like did they do it like do we know that these men like okay they were like wearing a skirt but like does that mean and the answer is yes actually and it's kind of I mean it, it's a it's tragic on the HMS resolution when it was the first ship to cross the Antarctic Circle in 1773 led by Captain James Cook 19 men were pu- were punished for sodomy with a, a total of 288 lashes which apparently was um, a really tolerant kind of punishment um, Cook was known to be tolerant among his contemporaries as if that kind of violence could ever be um, tolerant or lenient and I mean these wow. It, it truly, it is true that expeditions to the polar regions in the way in which they were isolated, um, uh, tight-knit communities, 
did allow people an opportunity to experiment or maybe to act on things that they knew for a long time were part of them in, in a way that was separate and private and very physically far away from the rest of a society that would have thrown them in prison or executed them or worse. So I, I love the thought of St. Paul's Dome on a, on a guy fully made up in the middle of the, the Arctic icy desert, but also like this might have been an opportunity for some people. This might have been kind of the best time of, of some folks, of some folks' lives. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I I wish there were more documentation of that part and maybe less about how hard it was to make a petticoat, you know? Yeah, I wonder if there's, so there's something that um, Meg mentioned in yeah. her episode about reading against... That was against... such a good episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I, I was obviously just absolutely so entranced by it. But you know, when she was talking about reading against the grain in people's diaries and things, and I wonder if yeah. there's a way to like read the diaries of the people who were doing these like original panto parties to see if there's something in there that you can kind of, what she called it, like feeling backwards, I think. Mm-hmm. Like to see if there's something that actually from a queer perspective, you can see the queer experience of that person rather than reading it from like a heterosexual sort of cisgendered perspective and being like, oh, he made a dress and that was fine, the end, you know? I wonder if there's a way to like read it in a queer way, but yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Meg also talked about, you know, that we always want the proof, like we always want the proof that they like did stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that they you know, had sex as the culmination of queerness, which of course, like, if queer is a way of kind of exploding out our notions of like what sexuality and gender is, then maybe we shouldn't have these um, sort of like consummations as as mm. as the proof and as the kind of epitome of, of the things we do and the ways we love, right? So, yeah. I mean, I, I get when people are like, well, <laughs> they were doing drag, but did they have sex? And in the end, like- They're not yeah. gonna tell you like if they were doing it, like, because like you said, it was a punishable offense. They're not gonna say in their diaries, we boned uh, because that's not allowed. There'll, there'll be something in there possibly about the experience. But there's also like, you know, one of the benefits of, of queer sex is that it doesn't so between between men or between women doesn't produce babies so um if there'd been men and women on the ship you'd kind of know there was sex going on because someone would get pregnant and that would happen but if it's a a ship full of men in the 1800s is that the right era 1800 yeah in the 1800s even if they're doing it you're not really going to have the proof that comes from right. that which it would be a baby nothing's right. going to happen if they have sex unless maybe everyone comes down with syphilis and they'd be like well maybe they had it anyway but, you know <laughs> they just have they've just been eating like bread and sardines for <laughs> for seven months and that's why they're sick no yeah. but i think that's such an interesting point just because like you're right there is and i mean of course some queer sex can produce babies yeah. but like, in in the sense like there is kind of an inherent like hiddenness inside something that's already that's already hidden and i and i think and I think the most important thing I'm going to take, you know, take away from this conversation is that if we're if we're looking for the evidence to be explicit, then that means that sort of heterosexuality is the default. Right. Yeah. We're saying, of course, I mean, we're saying that there's there's no <laughs> there's no way this is actually true until we until we have it on on paper. But I think what was really it's been so cool for me about learning about queerness over time and space, because I've talked about queerness back to 30,000 years ago. It's just that it's everywhere across space and time. And there's a lot of different words for it. There's a lot of different ways of understanding it. There's sipinik, there's um, a pride flag. There's all the things in between. 
And it's been really cool to sort of, I think the polar regions are at the margins of the world and we're, mm. we're looking at sort of people at the margins of society, um, at the margins of the world. And I think, and and also thinking about Antarctica uh, in particular, but also the Arctic as, as an escape, at least for, for Europeans. and. Um, who were couldn't be as mar who couldn't be physically marginal they were socially marginal but wanted to kind of get away and I, I think interested closer to our time like one thing I was wondering as I thought about this was well, what is the official policy I mean we, we um, why were, were people actually prohibited and and when did that stop um, I mean from being queer uh, on these kinds of ex expeditions the way that women were prohibited. And there's two mentions of homosexuality in the British Antarctic Survey archives from the late 80s, so a kind of time when we would expect to see changes or, or at least mentions and, uh, of, of how homosexuality is treated. And here, there's, they contradict each other. Um, mm. And so the first thing that we see is a quote that says, if homosexuality in an, in an applicant to an expedition was known, that person would not be selected. And then another note from that same time that, that curiously reads, there is a homosexual relationship at the moment, which is accepted by the officers of one ship and presumably the crew. And consequently, BAS has no right to interfere. So it's mm. this kind of don't ask, don't tell. Um, and that's, the, uh, I'm referring there to the American policy of, of um, queer folks in the military, right? Which is, bleh, but mm. <laughs> essentially says, you know, um, as long as you keep yourself marginal, as long as you don't, you, as long as we don't see what's going on, as long as you keep who you are away from us, then we can ignore you. Um, I don't know. It's kind of a, an acceptance of a ship as being like a, an entity of it on its own in that yeah. as a, as a society on that ship, they have accepted this couple. And therefore, right. they are the only people that need to worry about it because exactly. they're not under the rule of anybody else. Because when you're in, I don't know, for example, in international waters or like on a ship, a captain can marry his crew. He has that that permit, yeah. that, um, that right. And it's almost like it's its own small cosmos. And so right. so long as everybody's like, I don't know, minding their own business, then everybody's OK. It's quite right. interesting. Yeah, I think. Yeah, in in the in the same in the same vein, that's kind of what Antarctica attempted to do to it itself, and it, it's 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 difficult to talk about Antarctica because different parts are under sovereignty of different countries, yeah. right? That um, doesn't have its own government, but. In 2016, uh, Antarctica was declared by the, I mean, the people who inhabit it, there are full-time people on research bases, and yeah. those people on it permanently declared Ar Antarctica the world's first LGBTQ plus friendly continent. Wow. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, again, not an Antarctic government, but was declared by an activist group among kind of polar researchers. Um, and so what, what they said was that anyone inhabiting or visiting the continent um, is not subject to any restrictions based on being LGBTQ plus, and in fact, are explicitly welcoming. Um, so no other continent can, can claim that title. <laughs> kind of sad that it's the only, uh, the only place. Yeah. uninhabited continent and that we would need to travel quite a while to get to the only LGBTQ plus friendly continent. But yeah, so that was 2016. And then in 2018, um, there 
Polar Pride was set up um, by BAS and then McMurdo, which is the largest Antarctic station announced the first pride parade on the continent. So yes, there literally was a, a parade on Antarctica, which I'm sure the penguins were very happy about because they do, they do love a parade. They do, <laughs> but they do. There's a whole parade all in lines. Exactly. I think my, um, when I became a tour, the tour guide for the Polar Museum, um, I received a, a penguin pin that it, it's like a little penguin carrying a rainbow and it says polar pride. Um, so I wish I had it with me right now, but it's like maybe my most prized possession. Yeah, I can imagine. That's so sweet. I usually take people back to the lobby of the museum and um, kind of encourage them to, to, to have as a takeaway that queer people are across time and space and even at the poles. Like, I think if you can expand your mind to say like um, that queer people not only exist in my city, not only in my country, not only in sort of the world, but also um, in the animal kingdom and on the poles, then uh, maybe you can see, maybe we can see ourselves as normal. Maybe everyone can see us as normal. Um, and yeah. I think you know, the museum is such a is such a place of power. It's a place that um, is really connected to sort of yeah, colonial legacies um, of of power and of and their purpose is of course to teach people um, how to be, how to act, what our how our world is structured, what our world looks like. And I think if we can make sure that explicitly sort of anti-misogynist and anti-racist representations of queer people are there, then we can say this is as much a part of our society as mm. um, the kind of the objects sitting in the cases, right? And so yeah. I always ask people to, when the next time they go to a museum, think about maybe all the things that um, might be missing. Maybe ask a curator what kinds of queer and feminist histories um, and histories of resistance they can look yeah. for. And then uh, I think, yeah, I think when COVID ends, if you could look up all the different museums that have LGBTQ tours and go to all of them, then you'll just be, you'll be saturated with knowledge about, <laughs> about queerness yeah. across the world. I think oh, I, I miss that so much. <laughs> it oh, me too. It'd be great to be uh, back in person, but such an amazing opportunity to be able to give the tour over the airwaves. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, thank you so much for for giving the tour over Airways. It's been amazing. It it it's been so lovely talking about all these things. And there really is like a need for for queering the representation to kind of show that people didn't people made these contributions as queer people, not in spite of the fact that they're queer, and like that queerness is a part of the whole picture yeah. and not just, um, you know, a part of them that isn't involved in everything else, you know. And and it's been it's been so fascinating to talk about these things and hear hear your thoughts about these different objects and you know, how they've influenced um, our views of queerness over time. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I think, yeah, I think little by little, if we can kind of crack open people's minds and uh, my, the penguin is also, is always the greatest place to start for me because one of the argument is always that it's not natural. And then we just, we just talk about the sort of range of, of sexuality and expressions yeah. uh, and behaviors across the many, many different species on earth. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it's been, it's been also really ex expanding my mind as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much, Julia. What's your um, Twitter handle? My tw it's at Julia F Peck. 
Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, you can get us on Twitter and Instagram at Radio Zaddy, which is X-A-D-D-Y. Um, thank you very much for listening and get in touch if you have any ideas or recommendations. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.